is Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bare tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. Do you know what I can do with my little finger? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 17. This is the marvellous podcast where we give mouth to our memories and meditations on the meritorious movies of the mercurial, masculine maverick, Jimmy Jimbo, no, it's James Bond, 007. Welcome inside the cubbyhole. Sit down, relax, make yourself comfortable. If you're new around here, you might want to check out our social media. Do consider giving us a like and follow on Facebook and Instagram. It'll help you keep up to date with our latest show information. Just type in our show title and you'll find us very easily. Or on Twitter, we have the shorter handle of More Cubby. We always love to hear from you, so do get in touch with the show. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss or an interesting question you want us to answer, just leave us a comment on social media or send an email to rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com and you'll get a chance to feature in a future Q branch, i.e. the questions branch segment. Now, in our previous full episode, we discussed Bond number 16, License to Kill, the final Bond outing for Timothy Dalton, and indeed the final Bond film produced by the great Albertar Cubby Broccoli. On the whole, we were impressed with the dark, gritty, violent tone of the film and some particularly memorable villains from Milton Crest's Bad Headache to Friend Sanchez saying Yuppie Kaye to Truman Lodge. But with protracted legal disputes after the film's release and the Bond hot seat vacant, many predicted the end of the entire franchise. So how did it eventually reinvent itself? Well, with the actor believed by many to be the perfect man for the job, he'd been Remington Steele, he'd been Mark Teffin, he'd been that smarmy guy Stu in Mrs. Doubtfire. So was it the match made in Bond heaven for the Droha de Dynamo, Pierce Brosnan? Let's cast our eyes over Bond 17, Goldeneye. With me to discuss, it's the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who moves through smoke and mirrors, you can feel his presence in the crowd. Not sure whether the girls gather around him. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very good. Thank you very much, Martin. That was a fabulous introduction, by the way, though I am surprised that you didn't give a mention to Pierce Brosnan in Death Train, that uh, sort of low-budget thriller he made with kind of an all-star cast. I think Christopher Lee plays the villain in it and Patrick Stewart, his boss. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. I will uh, have to check that one out. Yeah, it's it's really fun, Death Train. Yeah, it's it, it's kind of schlocky and a little bit low budget uh, and a little frayed around the edges in terms of the effects. But it's it's still a really enjoyable late night. You know, if you watched it with a beer on a Saturday night, you'd really enjoy it. Phil's nodding, so I assume he's seen it as well. There's that particularly good bit in Mrs. Doubtfire when um, he snaps uh, a part of his uh, Mercedes off. Uh, Robin Williams does as Mrs. Doubtfire, and you can just see the rage barely contained in Pierce Brosnan's eyes. It's a lovely little comedy moment from him. It's a shame he hasn't got the BMW, really, so he can make use of the Stinger missiles that are not used in this one. Oh, what, so that he can actually show off the gadgets that are not seen in this film? I mean, that BMW is definitely the, the Sir not appearing in this film, isn't it? Okay, very good. A reminder there of checking out the Brosnan canon of films. And uh, secondly, it's the man who has no problem with female authority, especially if it's Judy Dench's M. I think you knew that was coming, didn't you, Phil? It's Phil. How are you? 
Yes, thanks very much, Martin. Very good, thank you. Um, just wanted to say again, a really quick shout out for our um, social media followers. So just really quickly on Facebook, thank you to Rob Tucker, Charlie Ward and Paul Martin for your likes and comments. Um, and just really quickly to Laurie Brown as well, who was in touch with us about our Timothy Dalton episodes. They also agreed that Timothy Dalton should have had more of a run in the franchise. Phil, does the uh, the appearance in this film of Dame Judi Dench mean that you're now watching these films with an extra little erotic charge every time? I wouldn't say no, is, is the short answer to that. Um, no, I was I was going to point this out in the actual episode, but no, I I think this is kind of this feels like it's our bond because it's this is what we grew up with. But obviously, we'll get on to that in the actual episode. Maybe this is our M as well in that sense because obviously Judy Dench becomes the defining role of M in the Pierce Brosnan era. So I'd I'd say I hold it with a lot of respect. Well, our bond, but surely your M, Phil. She's not our fiance. <laughs> Okay, and finally, for part two of his return, it's the man who's the only one on the hosting team not to be a stiff-ass Brit. It's Nick. How are you, Nick? Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud to be Irish this episode, as, as Pierce is here, criticising the British for their behaviour in World War II. I mean, that was several generations before us. I don't, I don't think we can all be held uh, accountable for that. I remember when uh, you were here for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Nick, you, you sort of uh, recalled trying to sneak into the cinema to see this one uh, when you were a little too young. And, and I certainly tried to do the same thing and failed with Tomorrow Never Dies. So that film always holds a very special place for me. Is this the same uh, for you for that reason? It's, it's sort of the first one, I guess, that you were aware was, was coming out. And so you were aware of the hype surrounding. Yeah, absolutely. Like I still, I still remember <laughs> sitting in the car park outside as uh, my my parents tried to convince them to to let me in as a you know trying to get into Goldeneye, and then eventually seeing it and realizing on a top was the cause. But I think subsequently I appreciate the character of on the top, so it's okay. But yeah. It, you know, it's the first bond of living memory, and I think it does hold a special place. And some images are just completely burned in my mind. It burned in your mind like some hot coals in a in a spa room, I suppose. <laughs> okay, so uh, we'll move now to our first segment. It's over to the Double A team, Adam and Alan. What did they think of Goldeneye? Thank you very much. So, Goldeneye, the 17th James Bond film, taking its title, of course, from Ian Fleming's Kingston, Jamaica estate, where he wrote the vast majority of the Bond novels. Uh, the film is directed by Martin Campbell. It's the first of two Bond actors he would introduce to the series by directing their debut films. And it is the first Bond film to star Pierce Brosnan, of course. It's also the first film to be co-produced by Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli. Albert R. Broccoli took a supervising producer role in this one, uh, but a step back from the day-to-day hands-on role of making the film. It's also dedicated to the memory of Derek Meddings, the special effects artist uh, for whom this is his final film, and he'd been with the series on and off since Live and Let Die. So Goldeneye is released in November 1995, that's seven years after Pierce Brosnan's original breakout film performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! 
GoldenEye's made on a budget of $60 million, so that's double the budget of Licence to Kill, and it goes on to gross $352.1 million worldwide, and that finally beats Moonraker's record as, unadjusted for inflation, the highest grossing Bond film up to that point. So, to see why it might have made all of that money, here's Alan. Pierce Bronholm's down the gun barrel. Bang! Blood dribbles down. Bond bungee jumps into a toilet. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. And starts shooting up a Russian base with Yorkshire's finest Sean Bean. But Bean's shot by Russia's campist general. So Bond blows everything up and does an evil cadaver onto a diving plane to escape. Cue Tina. GoldenEye. Bond's Aston has an unlikely chase against a Ferrari, accompanied by MI6's dorkiest woman. Then in a casino, he gets burned by heavily accented innuendo machines, then you're on a top. How do you take it? Straight up. With a twist. Zenya shags a bald beardy weirdy to death and nicks a chopper, which she and Russia's campus general used to steal two EMP satellite weapons. Bond gets a dressing down from Her Majesty Dame Judi Dent. I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War, and sends him to Russia to investigate after he's put his greasy mitts all over Q's subway sarny. Don't touch that! It's my lunch! Bond meets CIA redneck Jack Wade, I've had it with you stiff-ass Brits, chats to Robbie Coltrane while Mini Driver murders Stand By Your Man. Only three men I know use the Walter PPK, I believe I've killed two of them. Gets bruised and steamy with Xenia. No, no, no. No more foreplay. Then meets shadowy criminal mastermind Yanis, who's only bloody Sean Bean. Closing time, James. Last orders. Bond and screechy Russian tech nerd Natalia eject from the chopper of doom, have a fight with that bloke from the missing. Stop it, both of you. You're like boys with toys. Destroy most of St. Petersburg in a tank and have another train fight at the Neen Valley Railway. Then Bond and Natalia just sort of chill and shag for a bit, even though the clock's ticking, before finding Sean Bean's secret Cuba base and turning Xenia's love of choppers and rough sex against her. She always did enjoy a good squeeze. In the base, Natalia reprograms the satellites from creepy whiny Poindexter Boris, Bond's pen blows everything up, and he finally gets one over on Yorkshire's finest. For England, James? No, for me. Bean improbably survives a 200-foot drop onto solid concrete only to get crushed to death by a ton of burning wreckage, and Bond's interrupted from showing Natalia his magic penis by CIA redneck Wade and a troop of marines who, instead of doing anything, just crouched in camouflage for the entire finale. Meanwhile, Poindexter Boris yells, Yes, I am invincible! Then gets turned into a human snowman. The end. Thank you very much, Adam and Alan. So GoldenEye was, the, of course, the first Bond film after the Cold War. So Bond finding his place in a new political landscape. And also the first Bond to use CGI effects and utilizing the internet, of course, as part of the plot. So Bond finding his place in the new technological age as well. I feel like I have some rose-tinted glasses when looking at the Brosnan era, because he is the one that we grew up with. But I think you can definitely see why the producers always had him in mind, because for me, I think he really combines many of the positive aspects from previous Bond actors. So he's kind of got some of the masculinity, the panther-like walk of Connery, some of the eyebrow-raising comedy of Roger Moore, some of the tenacity of Dalton, 
and uh, some of the, the non-Britishness of uh, George Lazenby. Uh, and I think on top of it all, he, he looks like Bond from the very moment we see him, that great opening uh, where the light is cast onto his face. You're really sold that this is Bond right from the beginning, even though there'd been a considerable gap since the, the previous film. Uh, so I guess, I mean, he does have some weaknesses, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get onto those. But I think that this film is a really great vehicle for showing off the, uh, the new Bond. Most importantly, perhaps, it's kind of a tonal shift into the modern era. So we kind of move away from that gritty realism of the previous two films, and it's replaced with kind of pure fantasy and uh, some great escapism. Before I wax lyrical too much, should we go over to, uh, to Nick? What are your impressions of Goldeneye? Yeah, I I thought like you that I'd have a kind of rose-tinted view of this film. Um, maybe I do, but I thought it was excellent, really. Before there was reboots, it's a kind of reboot. And you're exactly right. Brosnan combines so many of the qualities of the previous Bonds. And you can see him fitting in most that he can do the comedy in a similar way to more but you can also feel he's dangerous and you can see him as the ladies' man. He, you know, in that opening scene, he makes coming out of a toilet cubicle look really cool, which which is quite a skill. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I loved it. I thought that the plus, well, fantasy was just about uh, credible. It also brought in so many stunts and incredible locations. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think it was a way of showing that Bond was relevant after the Cold War and is probably why it's still going today. It gave it uh, you know, a boost of adrenaline to get it into the post-millennium era. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I think it's this film is hugely important for the franchise, not just because it kind of it helped a new audience get into Bond. I mean, also, we've spoken ourselves about how much, you know, Brosnan had an effect on us in terms of getting us interested in the Bond franchise. But I think this film, it was so important that it struck the right tone from the very start. So getting Brosnan in as the, the main actor was, I think, was the right decision because he'd been sort of touted for it in the, the late 80s. And I think Martin Campbell was a good choice as well because he revitalised what a lot of people probably thought at the time was kind of a dying franchise. So I think there was this is probably one of the most important films in the entire series, simply because of how much was riding on it for it to that it needed to succeed, and obviously it did. Yeah, I think you make an excellent point there, Phil, about how important it was that this film be successful. It's still the longest gap between Bond films, that from Licence to Kill to Goldeneye. It was about six and a half years or something. Uh, all because Pathé Entertainment uh, tried to buy MGMUA and the distribution rights uh, that were included to that for the Bond films was not to Eon Productions' liking, and so there was a lot of legal issues. But because Bond had been absent for so long and because of what had happened in the world, yeah, it was particularly important for this to be a success. And I think the way it's successful and the way that, like you very correctly say, it brings Bond into the modern era is that, like The Living Daylights, it has one foot in the past and one foot in the future. Um, obviously, the plot is is embracing the fact that it is the end of the Cold War, particularly that Russia is now having to find a new identity and a new place in the world just as much as Britain is. And in the film itself, we have that imagery of the Cold War having collapsed. We have the graveyard with the crumbled statues of Lenin, and they're over the title sequence as well. 
But at the same time, the actual plot obviously goes into the realms of futurism in the same way that I guess A View to a Kill does. And so what the film therefore does is it actively questions uh, the existence of Bond in this new world order, but actually re-exerts, reasserts rather his existence by redefining him as a 90s action hero. And it means that actually this isn't a radical Bond film. It's very much a formula Bond film. It's traditional. It's action humor spectacle but it's updated to a brand new style and a very cutting edge style, which actually makes it feel incredibly fresh and, and as if it has completely rebooted the whole genre. Uh, yeah, so I guess as much as I'd like to start with the Neme Valley Railway, perhaps we should look at the pre-title sequence. Should we talk about that one? Because it introduces us to our new Bond in spectacular fashion, very memorable opening. And I think I read somewhere that it's still the tallest bungee jump in a film, apparently. You certainly get a good sense of that, don't you, with the camera angles looking down on Bond. We haven't seen his face yet. It gets a bit ridiculous towards the end of the pre-title sequence, um, jumping off a, a mountain on a motorbike and falling into a plane and then managing to get out alive. It seems a bit more ridiculous than some of the, uh, the Roger Moores that we've looked at. But I think overall, it's a great opening. Yeah, I, I'd agree, Martin. I think it is a great way to open the film. I, I do agree as well, the idea that I'm not sure how big that mountain side is, the fact that he has to bungee jump off a dam and then he, he then has to leap off the edge of a cliff face to catch a plane. It's, it must be the world's tallest mountain to have a, you know, a secret base at. But no, I, I think it's a great way to start the film off. Obviously, you know, it sets up the idea that Bond is working in partnership with, with 006 and that they both have to infiltrate this secret base Bond obviously isn't there and the audience isn't aware that obviously this is all a setup and you know that Alec Trevelyan already has it all planned out of what's going to happen and of course we also meet Oromov as well the um as uh, Alan and Adam mentioned the kind of the, the world's campest Russian villain that we ever see it seems to get camper as the film goes on blow the gas tanks this is your last chance come out with your hearts above you is that sequence in 1986, do we think? Because obviously the next part, it cuts forward nine years. Are they insinuating it fits in between the Roger Moore and Dalton era? Yeah, they probably don't want to be crazy literal about it. I think, I think the nine-year gap is probably more to make the point of this sequence is pre-fall of the Berlin Wall when it is still the USSR. Indeed, the caption's dictated as being a USSR base. But it is an interesting point that, yeah, if we take that nine years literally, this is pre-living daylights because this sequence does owe a great debt to the opening sequence of the living daylights. They're actually very, very similar if you look at them. Uh, the black sort of commando outfit is, is very similar that Bond and uh, Trevelyan are wearing. It's like that of the three double O's in Gibraltar. There's the idea that this is a base infiltration with fellow double O agents. And so the whole thing kind of is a one-up on the living daylights because it takes those elements, makes them much more spectacular. And also it merges, as uh, you say, Phil, the stunt work of the spy who loved me and the fact that we have BJ Worth doing this amazing bungee jump following on from the great ski jump with the parachute. I think something to say about the the opening is how it uses suspense, which is something that this film really, the whole film thrives on, is is building suspense, particularly in the first half. You kind of, I think it's a very good introduction for Brosnan in that he's sneaky around the base, he's kind of got that, and then Sean Bean is introduced in Shadow, and then comes into the light as he does later. And um, the comedy and suspense of Bond hiding behind the canisters, but there's the squeaky wheel on the trolley 
as the only sound. And I think it really shows off that they're going for more suspense-based, less action-focused. It's not just burst into an action scene. They're very interested in suspense. Yeah, that's a really good point. And of course, that sequence with them, the presence of Trevelyan, um, it also introduces something that's really crucial to how the films uh, handle and support Brosnan's portrayal of Bond. Uh, you're quite right, Martin, to, to make the point that he is, in a sense, a postmodern Bond. He's combining the best elements of all four actors who went before him. But he is ultimately closer to the Connery Moore Bond, who is sort of invulnerable, who is a little bit more superheroic. But to counter that, and we mentioned this a little bit um, when we were talking about License to Kill, they always make sure that within the narrative itself, there's something that renders Bond vulnerable and renders him mortal. Uh, and of course, in this one, it is the fact that the man who he thought was a very close friend, and when he thinks he's shot in this sequence, he, he really registers that. There's a moment when Brosnan can't quite believe what's happened. He's in shock for much of the rest of the sequence and is going on pure adrenaline. So it's a really clever little thing that the filmmakers always build around Brosnan to, to help enhance his performance. Yeah, I'd say the uh, perhaps the flip side of that vulnerability is that the villains always seem to have a lot more opportunities to kill Bond and uh, a very wasteful Trevelyan sets a precedent here for the Brosnan films in the future where uh, where you just think, but shoot the bloody gun. <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you using a dark gun and then putting him in a helicopter? This is also where we get the great line from Alec Trevelyan as well later in the film where, he just, where he's on the train and he just goes, why can't you just be a good boy and die? It's this idea you could literally just shoot Bond in the head and then all your problems are solved, you know, because you, you don't get the feeling that MI6 are going to send any other double agents if Bond is the best they can produce. It's, it seems bizarre that they, they still want to do these elaborate deaths for Bond, but they always, also they're always destined to fail. Yeah, actually, maybe it continues the tradition of the inept 00 agents, doesn't it? He's, he's 006, he's not going to do anything, is he? Do you think in the Bond uh, films, being a non-007-00 agent is the same as when in Star Trek you send some lowly crew member out in a red top? It's like, you know that they've had it. It's almost a death warrant. I have to say, Eric Serra on the music is one of the few weak links in this film. Uh, Eric Serra is, is very uh, strongly associated with Luc Besson and uh, France's cinema du look, which is very cool and trendy uh, sort of movement of cinema in the 1980s. And so his score is very sort of knowing and, and kind of funky. And it works in those films. I'm not entirely sure it works uh, in the context of a Bond film. Uh, I'm willing to be dissuaded, but it's one of the few things that I think doesn't quite work in this one for me. Yeah, did he not get sacked halfway through? Because this is probably the only Bond film where we get a weird kind of juxtaposition between the music, particularly in the Ferrari car chase. There's this weird sort of, almost like he's tried to record it on a Casio whilst falling down the stairs. It's, it's this weird sort of mix of like... It's like a bizarre kind of Game Boy video game. It's like the Mario Brothers trying to go around the streets of Monaco. It's, it's this weird mix. And then you cut to, obviously, when they get to the casino, it's much more of a traditional kind of Bond, you know, the soft strings and the sort of the woodwind instruments. It's, it kind of transitions. I think they, they kind of brought Eric Serra in to bring it more into sort of modern feel. But obviously, I think they then realised, hang on, we need to sort of change this again. 
The one element that I did want to defend Eric Serra on, though, is the actual closing titles, because I honestly think the, the song that it closes with, which is called The Experience of Love, I actually think that is a beautiful song. It's not, Phil. There, yeah, I wouldn't really agree, but there's also an explanation for it being completely different, is because he recorded it for another film, Leon, but it was never used, so he just stuck it in Goldeneye. I don't hate the soundtrack as much as many do. The first impression of it in this scene Phil was talking about uh, with the Aston Martin Ferrari chase really makes people dislike it because yeah, every, there should just be no music rather than that music. But I think later, you know, other, other later moments, it doesn't really cause me any issues. Maybe in the, the Ferrari Aston chase, he's sort of underpinning the kind of craziness of the fact that MI6 have sent this uh, fellow agent out to assess and evaluate Bond, but have sent her all the way abroad to Monte Carlo or, or wherever they are at this point. It's like they couldn't even wait till he was back in the country. They're, they're wasting taxpayer money to send out this seemingly quite useless uh, agent to, to evaluate him. I mean, there's literally a moment when she starts babbling in the car. She has a little... Yeah, you definitely feel like Bunny Penny was asking for that job, but she just didn't get it. That's why Money Penny's in such spiky mood when uh, when he then subsequently sees her and uh, and actually for the first time kind of takes control of the banter, I guess, between Bond and Money Penny. Surprise you as it might, I don't just wait around for 007 to come calling. I really like it. It almost, you know, obviously they do it, they go really far with it with Judy Dench, but it's a much more feminist slant on how uh, sort of Bond's um, immediate sort of female characters treat him and how they view him. Yeah, I like in those scenes we get a sense that they've got lives outside of the film and outside of the plot, which we haven't really had in previous films, like Money Penny on her date, M uh, mentions her children being sarcastic. It extends to even the smaller characters like Boris, who we don't see very much, but they give him good lines, they give him memorable, uh, memorable catchphrase in his case to stand out. So I think uh, the film does really well in fleshing out characters that I feel hasn't been or wasn't done particularly well in the past. It's, it's quite interesting the way that they introduce everyone, but I think it is done, as you say, Mark, it's done really, really well the way that it's all set up and obviously the kind of the in-jokes behind it, you know, there's, there's a great kind of warm relationship between uh, Money Penny and Bond where, where she's basically saying, you know, one day you'll have to make good on your innuendos. Yeah, I think this is the rare Bond film where you kind of look forward to the dialogue scenes. I find there's a lot of memorable dialogue. There's a real power plays going on in these, which are normally in a in a Bond film are more setting up things or exposition, but there's a lot of charge to these scenes. Yeah, you can always tell how good a Bond film is, I think, by how good the first half of the Bond film is and how much it, it keeps you interested in the mechanics of the plot before we get to the spectacular action sequences that tend to happen in the latter half of these films. And, and going back to that great scene between Judy Dench and, and Bond, where, of course, she calls him a relic of the Cold War and a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, it almost sets Bond up finally as a man apart and a kind of lone warrior He's not really representing the British intelligence interests anymore because he doesn't like their methods. He doesn't like, you know, how M is, is wedded to her analysts and, and not his instincts. And she doesn't like his old school way of doing things. And this sort of contrast between him sort of being a British agent, but being more of a kind of 
Western moral crusader. It, it, it's a through line that goes all the way to Skyfall when they really start analysing it. Yeah, and I think with that in mind, I think that's why Alec Trevelyan is a great villain in the film, because he is also outside, very even further outside of control. Uh, I mean, I guess he doesn't predict all of Bond's movements because eventually he does succumb to a rather painful death. But uh, he, I like the, like the scene where he disarms the bomb using Bond's watch. Uh, so he knows about Q's gadgets, although I get in a previous scene he'd forgotten about the watch. But anyway, I guess that still is quite a nice little take that they have of two double O agents against each other and fairly equally matched throughout the film. Yeah, and of course, at least that great fight scene at the end where obviously that's a really physical, full-blooded attack between the two of them. You know, there's a real hatred between the two of them that, you know, that Trevelyan thinks that his plans have been thwarted by Bond and obviously Bond wants revenge for someone that he, he felt was a friend who has betrayed him. And the fact they had to sort of choreograph it so that it, it looks much more realistic than what we've seen before. You know, it looks like they are trading punches and trading blows. So it's a much more realistic fight sequence. Trevelyan is probably one of the best villains that we've that we've seen for a long time, really. Yeah, so going back to what you said, Adam, about Bond being a kind of moral crusader, uh, apparently Trevelyan, the name Trevelyan comes from a guy called John Trevelyan, who was a 1960s film censor in Britain, who didn't like the Bond films, who didn't like the violence, didn't like the, uh, the quips and one-liners from Bond after he'd killed someone. Uh, so it's a little dig at, uh, at that guy, which I thought was quite nice. Oh, I didn't know that at all. That is really good. And, and of course, the fact that his, his crime syndicate name is Yanis, who, who is the two-faced uh, Greek god as well. So there's that sense of, you know, we've talked about characters who are the dark side of Bond. It's never been quite as literal as, as this time. The great thing here is that for possibly the first time, we get a physical match for Bond who isn't a henchman, who is as smart as him and the main villain. And perhaps actually, to pick up an earlier point, the fact that he forgets about the, the watch and then re-remembers it in the base. Perhaps that is actually him trying to work out how Bond escaped from the train. Perhaps that has, between those scenes, been a moment of Trevelyan thinking, how on earth did he get out of that? Oh, I've forgotten about Q and his idiot gadget watches. It must have been that. Of course, he doesn't suspect the pen. Uh, and you're right as well, Phil, about that final fight. It's, it's kind of like the bruising scrap on the lorry at the end of License to Kill. They're really getting hurt and they're really shedding blood and it's, it's incredibly vicious. Uh, and it's a great intense contrast to a lot of the other action sequences in the film, which in the sense of this being a traditional Bond updated with a new style, there's that great blend of, of action and spectacle and humour. You know, during the tank chase, the humour of that comes from A, the fact that he's in a tank, and B, the fact that General Oromov's sipping from that hip flask throughout the entire time with increasing vigorousness. But this is a very deliberate contrast to that in that they are really getting hurt, and it really gives an edge to that scene. Yeah, Cam Campbell has ex explicitly said that he wanted that fight scene to be like the From Russia With Love train fight, and... He he tried to and succeeded in getting about 90% of that fight is actually Sean Bean and Pierce Brosnan. So he can do handheld shots and he doesn't have to worry about covering their faces so much. So I think I think that really adds to the viciousness of, of what you were saying, Phil. As we mentioned, the third man reference in The Living Daylights, I know that... Uh, Trevelyan's re-emergence re when Bond finds out he's still alive, that the cinematographer had wanted that to be like Orson Welles' 
emergence in the third man. So it's just another callback to that Cold War classic. One final thing on Trevelyan, why he's such a bad double O agent, is his motto is half of everything is luck, the other half is fate. What kind of motto is that for a skillful agent? <laughs> Obviously, he was always going to die, wasn't he? He's essentially saying that 100% of it is absolutely nothing to do with anything that he does. He has literally no control over anything. So I was wondering, do you want to also talk about Xenia Onatop? Obviously, as uh, Trevelyan's kind of right-hand woman um, in this film, you know, kind of his number two. For me, I think Xenia Onatop returns to this idea of femme fatale in the series. And, you know, she's quite a violent character in her own terms. You know, she's a very independent person. Do we agree that she actually adds to the film as well? So, you know, we, we see her doing a lot of Trevelyan's dirty work for him. I think she she comes across to me as a feral version of Bond himself. She enjoys everything he enjoys, but rather more so. You can see that immediately uh, at the car race that they begin with, and then she's in the casino, and then her murders and her sex. She is Bond, but taken to a natural conclusion. And I think it's also a smart way of thinking about a pussy galore type character where we know the infamous scene where Bond seduces, or what do you want to call it, uh, pussy galore and changes her side, where you actually fear for Bond because that's certainly not going to work with uh, Xenia. And so it's turning one of Bond's previous apparent strengths against him. Yeah, that idea of turning his strengths uh, against him is a really important one for me, and I've, I've, I'm very glad you mentioned it. Um, just, just we talked a little bit about the fact that the female characters in this film have a more overtly feminist um, sort of edge to them than we've seen, even in the stronger female characters in previous films. And this is is almost taking that one step further by having Xenia utilise sex as a weapon. Sex has always been Bond's weapon, classically. You know, he seduces people for information or to turn him to their side, or at least against the nemesis. Here, it's taken even further, where literally sex is her weapon. You know, by getting people into these compromising positions, she then kills them by strangulation between her thighs. So it's, it's you know, it is repurposing, you know, sex as, as a weapon to a degree that even Bond really hasn't, hasn't gone anywhere near yet, and it wouldn't be possible to do it with Bond. And she also kind of crosses weirdly Mayday and Max Zorin. She has that sort of physical, sexual confidence with that almost erotic, unrepentant glee of killing. Like, you know, she's left panting at Sevenaya after she's murdered everyone with a machine gun. So there's a real steamy, kinky edge to the character. Um, which I think is is just absolutely brilliant and incredibly refreshing to see a woman have that much physical power. Yeah, I was going to say that's kind of a disturbing mix, isn't it, of uh, of sex and death in uh, Xenia's character. So I'd say, Phil, you're probably, that was an understatement, saying that she's a little bit violent. <laughs> um, she's quite, uh, um, I'd say, since probably Fiona Volpe was the, uh, the previous femme fatale, wasn't she, in Thunderball, that uh, Xenia takes it uh, up a several notches i think yeah there has been a real build from fiona volpe to grace jones as mayday to famke jansen as xenia on a top that they, they really every time they bring that character archetype back they raise the stakes exponentially higher and, and really do interesting things with it you also missed a great uh, opportunity for a little uh, joke there phil i think you, you described xenia as doing trevelyan's dirty work 
I mean, that, in quite a literal sense, you would say. That should have been in the film, Adam. That could have been another little one-liner they popped in. From Sean Bean, of course. I'm going to make out with this Russian. You go and do my dirty work, Zenya. Then he goes full on sharp. There's a French bastard in them hills. But then he has to go and score a penalty for Sheffield United. I love his death in this. The fact that he lives and survives that drop only for the whole structure to come down on him and just that big zoom, crash zoom into his face. Oh! I, do, I like the fact that we get the scene of him hitting the dish as well because rarely do we see that in a Bond film. They just kind of fall out of a plane or fall from a great height and we never see them again. But we do if it's Jaws. Uh, but this time we actually get the kind of graphic scene of him hitting the deck, which, was, uh, which I thought was quite a good inclusion. Yeah, it's one of the few scenes which actually has any blood in it, <laughs> as they they were trying to avoid the censors. So there's almost no blood, even though many people appear to get shot. Yeah, it's very satisfying at the time, though, because we've come to really detest this character at that point. And I think largely because of his treatment of Natalia when he briefly holds a captive on um, the Soviet train. And again, I think that's brilliantly portrayed by Sean Bean. You know, the line that he gives to to Bond where he says it sort of tastes like strawberries, but it's just re- a really, really, you wouldn't have, in any other context, you wouldn't have thought that would sound creepy. But it just, you know, be, Sean Bean manages to make it just sound really, really creepy and seems very slimy. And obviously Natalia tries to defend herself by sort of hitting him. Yeah, I think Natalia is a very underrated ally of Bond even though she seems annoyed with him most of the time for his actions. But she's critical in the finale. Bond wouldn't really have the impact without her. But yeah, she stands up for herself. And I think critically, the film gives her, in the first half, her story is told as herself, rather than she, she pops into Bond's story and explains it. So I think she develops more as a character there. And you... You see how resilient she is. She kind of reminds me of Cara Malovi in The Living Daylights as kind of an ordinary person who, and she is petrified, isn't she, when, when they burst in Aramov and Xenia and kill all of her colleagues. But she build, her character, you can see it building as the film goes on, and uh, she's kind of resilient to all of these things happening. And I quite like the way that she tricks Xenia into uh, pretending she's gone up into the vent and she's actually hiding in the kitchen cupboards. I mean, she would have been a bit screwed if Senior had checked the cupboards first and then seen the vent. But, uh, but ne- nevertheless, I think that Natalia really quite a good ally for Bond. She shows her mettle, really, doesn't she, throughout? Yeah, definitely. And you're, you're right about the Cara Milovi connection. She's initially out of her depth, but she, through the film and through her own strength of character, grows to the challenge. And it's also key that she's a strong female character who isn't just strong in a male sense, i.e. she's a fellow secret agent or she's a fellow action hero. She's accomplished in her own field. She's, okay, she's a low-level programmer, but she clearly knows what she's doing in terms of the technological side of the film to an extent that Bond is, of course, completely clueless with. Uh, and so that a sense of accomplishment is, is similar to obviously Cara being this sort of world-class cellist. It's the fact that they are established and, and they're brilliant at what they do. And because of that, because they have that strength of character, they're able to grow into the action that the film demands of them. And they find courage and bravery and ingenuity to be crucial to Bond ultimately, you know, achieving his mission. 
Do we also want to mention Boris a little bit more as well? Because it's the first kind of nerdy character that we've seen that plays a villain, I think, in, in the Bomber franchise. Obviously played brilliantly by Alan Cumming. Everybody is sort of revulsed a little bit by him because he's this, again, he's this kind of slimy, irritating little nerd that just kind of, he knows his stuff, but he's sort of, nobody really wants to have any time with him. You know, Trevelyan hates him because he's, you know, he seems jumped up. Natalia hates him because obviously he's betrayed everyone at Seven Eye. And Bond is obviously just there to try and kill him because he's part of the plot anyways. Yeah, and, and if you want proof of how irritating everyone else finds that character, their reactions when Natalia starts beating him up at the Cuba base and he's just sort of in his shorts and his spindly hairy legs just crouching under the desk and literally no one does anything. Sean Bean waits a good 30 seconds before he actually has the guards rein her in. It's like he wants to see him beaten up more than anyone, especially by a girl. I think whether it's by Boris or not, but I think the scene, uh, particularly the the editing of the scene where he is clicking the explosive pen, is again something very mundane. But they they add an incredible amount of tension. And uh, they said when Alan Cumming he dropped the pen by accident, they, the editor decided to add it even more suspense and managed to include it in, into the film. And so I think that that's a great scene featuring Boris. It's actually a, a really important one. So he needed to be a significant enough character for that, that scene to have such payoff. I'm always a little confused as to what the fuse on that pen actually is. I think Q says something like four seconds and then in the workshop, Brosnan clicks it three times and then they just stand there for a bit. And then Q does it and it seems to be okay after that. And there are definitely times in, in that otherwise great sequence with Boris and the pen where you're sort of sat counting it and you're like, okay, by my count, this should have gone off by now, actually. Yeah, it brings us nicely to Q branch, not the questions branch, but actual Q branch. Uh, what did we reckon to, obviously, Q, Desmond Llewellyn getting on a bit now in these more modern films, but still a very lovable character and perhaps even more lovable that he doesn't seem to care now about Bond destroying the... He knows his great work is going to get destroyed, and he's just like, oh, that's Bond. I suppose in License to Kill, he destroyed his own equipment and just saw when he was in the field, that's what you do. So he's he's not as serious about it these days. And in this one as well, it's the, the build-up of the amount of things that kind of go wrong in Q's workshop, the fact that, you know, with the great scene where the phone box, that was actually a stuntman that went in there with the airbag. But obviously, just the great comic effect where they're just chatting and he gets sort of launched against the side of the glass. And then the office assistant who's just on the phone who gets launched backwards with the rocket chair. And just these great scenes. But one of the best things of that entire sequence was, if you remember the X-ray document scanner, at the very end of that sequence. The only reason why they included that at all is because it forwarded the plot, because they couldn't work out how to say that Bond was going to be going to St. Petersburg. So they basically invented an X-ray document T-tray that said, you know, BA flight to St. Petersburg. That was the only way they could figure out to get around the plot hole. Q almost becomes a bit like the Aston Martin DB5 as well in this film. It's a real warm, cosy, nostalgic link to the classics. And in a film that's, in other senses, reinventing everything, it's crucial that you still have that one character who everyone knows and loves, who's still providing these, these great gadgets that are crucial to the plot and still create, you know, providing these great slapstick moments, as you, you say, Phil.
in the, in the behind the scenes, you see Martin Campbell directing uh, Judy Dench for her first appearance, and uh, he's he's saying, "I don't want you to be, you know, motherly. I don't want you doing this, being too caring. I want, you know, they've got to fear you. You've got the authority. You're not going to make something particularly of what you've just heard them saying." about you but you're going to just know that they respect you and you've got the power and judy dench completely does that and you respect her immediately yeah i think we get the uh, we get the payoff of that of course in her death scene in skyfall as well the fact that she has been established as this powerful figure but she does become slightly more caring i guess as, as the films go on well, she always gets the and is the other thing on the cast list. She's always got the and reserved. It's always and Judy Dench as M. I wonder which Bond film would, would be the best to, uh, to, to subject to uh, the Mark Strong butt game. You know, you get a cast list on a film and it's so-and-so, 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 and, and then it's always a big name actor who gets the and because they ask for it for their agents. Mark Strong imagined there was also a butt game where you have a film with loads and loads of really good actors in it. And then the last name you give is but this rubbish actor is also in it. Possibly not Diamonds Are Forever, because that would just be Sean Connery, but everyone else. Well, sure, surely by that reference, it should be um, The Man with the Golden Gun, because you've got Roger Moore, Sir Christopher Lee, but Hervé Villachez. No, he oh, deserves an end. That's a bit film. harsh. Yeah, that's and Hervé Villachez. I'm just trying to think now, what, what is a... Well, I mean, I guess um, License to Kill, maybe, but Talisa Soto. <laughs> I'm not having that. That's a bit harsh. No, it's not. <laughs> Octopussy, but Stephen Burkhoff. I was thinking that that uh, when Anatop is is killing the admiral, she kind of turns him into a Burkhoff. So he's been Burkhoffed. I really feel for that admiral guy because he must have thought his look was absolutely quids in at that point. You can just see him. I mean, the the, the little look of glee on his face when they're on the yacht together. At least he died happy. Apparently, he was suppo- the character was supposed to be American. He was supposed to be an American admiral, but the Pentagon asked the producers to change it. So I guess that explains some of the, the American insults that we get as well. The Americans are slugheads. Goldfinger, but check Linda. I have to say, I think, Phil, your claim that that end title song on Goldeneye is really good might be your most ridiculous claim since the whole Rick Van Nutter, Check hey, Linda Gates. Hang on, I really like that song. What's why? wrong with Eric? What? Even if but, you but like why? it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's, it's elevator music, Phil. It is elevator music on the end of a Bond movie. Bond movies should not end with that. You compare it to the song at the end of Tomorrow Never Dies, that really good one, Surrender, that should Surrender have actually been the title. Like, yeah. like, that's a really good one, not this one. Well, yes, I agree. Katie Lang is a better musician than Eric Serra. That's not really up for debate. All I'm saying is I quite like the Eric Serra song at the end of Goldeneye. Maybe I, I do have a unique taste in music. Obviously, people are probably not aware I enjoy Mull of Kintyre. I'm probably the only person in existence who enjoys Mull of Kintyre. But I, I will... Diff- that is Phil, don't be ridiculous. Phil, nobody likes Mull of Kintyre. Don't be daft. You're digging yourself an even bigger grave here. <laughs> <laughs> See, we, Get we in that statue our- graveyard. Phil, your opinions are crumbling faster than that statue of Lenin in the title sequence. 
Okay, so shall we move on now to the cars and gadgets? So uh, I believe Bond has some decent car number plate knowledge in this film, rivaling yours, Phil. But uh, what else have we got for this week? Can you swim? Yeah, so it's very much, Martin. So a very busy week this week. Um, as you just mentioned, obviously, Bond is very alert with um, his car number plates. He explains to any on the top that the French number plates for that year begin with the letter L, um, even the counterfeit ones. But just going into the cars, obviously, this is a much different feel to what we've had before. There are three key partnership deals. BMW uh, here for the first time, and they will go for the next three films. Ferrari get a very brief partnership deal and Kogiva Motorcycles uh, also um, get an agreement with the filming. So we see in the opening title sequences, the Kogiva 350T4 motocross bikes are used by Bond and the pursuing Russian soldiers to escape the secret military base. But for most people, the key chases in this are in the very opening scenes where the Aston Martin DB5 returns for Bond and Xenia Onatop uses the Ferrari 355 GTS. Now, for many sort of petrol heads, this is a bit of a problematic chase. Obviously, Remy Julien returns to direct the car chase sequences, so obviously we're through the hills of Monte Carlo. The trouble is, although it's kind of a nostalgic throwback, the Aston Martin DB5 by this point was 30 years old. So basically, you've got a modern-day supercar versus a 30-year-old relic. So there's no real way in the real world that these two cars would have been able to, you know, that would have been in the same league, really. You know, the Ferrari would have been gone. So let's talk about the Z3. We first see it in Q's workshop where he proudly explains some of the gadgets that are in it. So we hear this thing of missiles, there's radar guidance, there's cruise control, um, there's satellite navigation, uh, police radio jammers. So it's very much going back to the sort of gadgets we can recall from the living daylights with the Aston Martin. As we've kind of touched upon earlier in the episode, although we, we get this sort of taster of what the BMW can offer, we actually get to see none of these gadgets at all. So it's, it's got the only thing we really see is the satellite navigation when Bond is driving through the uh, through the cornfields of uh, of Cuba, so it's a bit of a disappointing inclusion for the car. The other sort of chase of note is, of course, the tank chase through St. Petersburg. Again, one of the great sort of memorable chases that we've um, seen in the Bond films. Again, Remy Julien would um, coordinate the sequence, and initially on the storyboard they wanted to use this as a motorbike chase. So originally it was going to be a motorbike chase, chasing the Gaz Volga through the streets of St. Petersburg. But the stunt team just couldn't get it to work. It just wasn't working the way they wanted it to. So in the end, one of the teams said, well, why don't we try a tank? Because they were in the armory, they may as well give it a go. And that's exactly what they did. So the tank in question was a KHPZ T-54. For the most part, the entire sequence is filmed using a real tank, and that's that whole scene is done for real. Um, interestingly enough, they did get into a bit of trouble because the St. Petersburg authorities thought they'd filmed a lot more of the sequences in St. Petersburg itself and actually caused damage to the city. In the end, they had to sort of gently say to them that this wasn't the case. They'd, act they'd 
filmed a lot of it in the UK and they'd only done a few shots in St. Petersburg itself. Just going on to um, the gadgets, so again, much different to License to Kill. We've got much more of an open run for Q and Bond to both have their own gadgets. So Bond, obviously, in this film, we've mentioned the Omega Seamaster watch, which is used partly to detonate the uh, mines. As we said, Alex Trevelyan is one step ahead and managed to deactivate them. We've also seen it was used as a laser to get Bond out of the train when he's trying to escape. And of course, we've got the sponsorship deal with Parker Pens with the uh, Class 4 grenade, which is used to great effect in the closing scenes where Bond blows up uh, Trevelyan's lair. So that's a really, really quick um, run through the, um, the gadgets and the cars that we used in Goldeneye. But a lot, lot of um, interesting content this week for the, the type of vehicles that we used. Okay, so I'll head over now to our new segment. It's Beyond the Book with Adam. So I guess there's only one place to start, but uh, what have we got this week, Adam? So we're going to go beyond the book in this new segment, which is looking at how Bond has been adapted beyond Ian Fleming's novels and the films. And of course, we have to here start with Bond in video games, because to people of our generation... GoldenEye isn't just the first Brosnan Bond film, it is the Nintendo 64 classic. Developed by Rare and released in 1997, it was a radical 3D first-person shooter game which was praised for its realism and became the third best-selling Nintendo 64 game of them all at 8 million copies. Of course, it's most fondly remembered as starting probably thousands of beer and pizza Friday nights uh, in uh, with its four split-screen multiplayer mode which you could play as any character from the film plus some great Bond alumni such as Mayday, Jaws, Oddjob and Baron Samady. Goldeneye wasn't actually the only uh, video game based on this film. There was also a 1995 handheld console game, a 2004 game Goldeneye Rogue Agent, which was widely panned for featuring neither the plot of Goldeneye or indeed James Bond. And then the game was remade for the Nintendo Wii in 2010, uh, recasting Daniel Craig as Bond uh, within the plot of Goldeneye and actually enlisting Nicole Scherzinger to re-record Tina Turner's theme tune. Goldeneye was far from the first James Bond video game, however. That title goes to 1982's Shaken Not Stirred, a text-based adventure game for the ZX Spectrum. However, the first recognised Bond game was 1983's James Bond 007. A side-scrolling game, i.e. you literally play from one side of the screen to the other, which included four classic Bond levels, which were rescuing Tiffany Case from an oil rig, blowing up the underwater lab in The Spy Who Loved Me, blowing up the probes uh, flying to Earth, as in Moonraker, and recovering the ATAC uh, from the sunken ship, as in For Your Eyes Only. And in 1988, quite bizarrely, there was a live and let die video game which purely featured a speedboat chase through Louisiana. So yes, Sheriff JW inspired one of the very first James Bond video games. At this point, Electronic Arts takes over uh, the creation of the games and creates a third person uh, shooter game for Tomorrow Never Dies. It creates both the PlayStation 4 and Nintendo 64 versions of The World Is Not Enough. And one for you, Phil, 007 Racing, which uh, featured uh, a series of car racing levels behind the wheels of the Aston Martin DB5, the Lotus Esprit, and the BMW Z8. And at this point, again, the video games actually plugged the gap uh, between Bond films by creating uh, some original stories. Uh, the first was Agent Under Fire, which featured uh, a plot about cloning world leaders. This is followed by Nightfire, which coincided with Bond's 40th anniversary in 2002 and actually continued the storyline from Agent Under Fire. 
This was followed by Everything or Nothing, which boasted an all-star cast, not just Brosnan, John Cleese and Dame Judi Dench, but Richard Keel reprising the role of Jaws, Heidi Klum playing our Bond woman, and Willem Dafoe, no less, as the Bond villain, uh, who, as a nanotechnology terrorist, is actually specifically a mentee of Max Zorin from A View to a Kill. Uh, the next one was actually a remake of From Russia With Love, with Sean Connery returning to voice the role of Bond, going up for rights reasons against Octopus instead of Spectre. Then in 2008, Activision takes over making the games, and they have so far made three, a tie-in with uh, Quantum of Solace, which actually blends levels from the first two Daniel Craig films, Bloodstone, which returns to the third-person format of Tomorrow Never Dies, and stars none other than British soul sensation Joss Stone, as a double agent who may or may not be working for Spectre to tie into the films. And most recently, in 2012, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Bond, 007 Legends, in which Daniel Craig is recast to complete missions inspired by Goldfinger, On a Majesty's Secret Service, Moonraker, License to Kill, and Die Another Day. And interestingly, those missions take place as flashbacks after he's been shot, as in the opening of Skyfall, so lending kudos to the idea that perhaps in the chronology of the series, all the other Bond films weirdly sort of take place between Quantum of Solace and Skyfall. Uh, so I hope that was a, a semi-interesting and informative look at the history of Bond in video games. It'd be good on social media to hear which ones you owned as a child, which ones you remember playing, which ones you have fond memories of, beyond, of course, Goldeneye, where everyone remembers getting the rocket launcher and just firing it at everyone else. Yeah, I think that was a good comprehensive look there at the video games, Adam. I think I mentioned in a previous episode that I, I didn't really play many of them as a child, uh, so I am reliving that childhood next to me. Uh, many of the James Bond video games that you mentioned, Adam, and I'm making my way slowly through them. Many of the games have great features, uh, but there isn't really... I guess that's why people go back to Goldeneye, because for them that is the perfect one that had so many of the elements all together, whereas the future ones have good elements... Like even GoldenEye Rogue Agent that you mentioned is the bad one. That one had Sir Ken Adam as the set design who did the levels. Uh, so you can imagine him doing the actual GoldenEye game. Yeah, it really would have been. I mean, Rogue Agent, to go a bit more into that, the plot actually, uh, GoldenEye is the code name of our hero, who is a rogue, double o, sorry, a rogue MI6 agent. So it's not James Bond at all. And the plot actually sees him go off to assassinate Dr. No. So perhaps that's why Ken Adam was brought in to do the levels. The fact that he, of course, created those great sets for Dr. No. Uh, it's true. I think GoldenEye also lives on because it, it had such a life outside of just James Bond and that series of video games. It was one of the defining games for an entire console. Okay, so we'll move on to our next segment, which is Now I Know You. I'm not going to do the JW this time. You can hear him yourself now. Now I know you. Oh, no. You're that secret agent. That English secret agent from England. So this segment is where we look at some of the callbacks to previous films. And of course, Goldeneye, with that big gap between License to Kill and Goldeneye, they kind of want to make the audience aware of the gap, but still kind of pretending that Bond never went away, even though he did for quite a considerable number of years. Uh, so we've got quite a lot of callbacks to uh, get through. I'll just try and get your opinions on, uh, on some of them. I thought one of the more interesting ones was The Living Daylights, Q mentions a female Russian agent who likes to kill people with her thighs. And so I think that's a great little link referring to uh, Xena Onatop, who we get in this film. Also, some nice little callbacks to Dr. No. So the, the casino scene with Xenia 
uh, is very reminiscent of that opening where we're introduced to Bond for the first time, Sean Connery's Bond. And uh, in this film, we get uh, behind Xenia, one of the extras is Kate Gason, who is the daughter of Eunice Gason, who played Sylvia Trench in that Dr. No scene. If you remember the end of Dr. No, Felix Leiter, the, the useless Jack Lord version, turns up with the Marines, very similar to this film, where Jack Wade turns up with the Marines several hours late. We also get the obvious link with You Only Live Twice, the satellite dish hidden beneath the water, and Bond goes out in a plane to try and identify where the enemy is located. Uh, we get Goldfinger links with the Aston Martin ejector seat. This time, Bond has to use the ejector seat in the helicopter to avoid its self-destruction. Uh, maybe I thought the, the alliance with Zakowski was quite reminiscent of those with Columbo in Fiora's Only and uh, Tracy's Dead in On Her Majesty's. So criminals who, for this adventure at least, are on Bond's side. And maybe the, the chase as well, the, the tank chase, which we haven't spoken that much about, uh, a particular scene that links back with the live and let die. You remember the bus chase where the, uh, the double-decker bus, where the top of it hits the bridge and then falls down onto the people chasing Bond. And that happens here, but this time it's a tank, it's a statue, and it's not, uh, it's not a bridge, it's more like a, a building, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so those are probably my favourite callbacks. I don't know if, uh, if you guys... Did you have any other ones you spotted? No, I've nothing to really add to that. Um, it is great, actually, that spot about um, the, the Russian agent who strangles victims between her thighs in the living daylights. I seem to remember there's an image up in uh, Q Branch, and, it, and it's someone who, who I think is, is rather of larger build than Famke Janssen. But had Famke Janssen been around at the time, you almost want them to perhaps consider doing a George Lucas, don't you, with that film, i.e. go back and change it. And it's just a slightly younger looking Famke Janssen appearing in that shot. Okay, so we'll move on now to Q Branch. I believe we've got a special Q Branch segment. Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. So in August, the British publication, the Radio Times, ran a poll for the British public to say which was their or their most favourite or their most well-liked Bond actor. Now, interestingly enough, it was... So Sean Connery, perhaps for many, is the archetypal Bond, um, and he won that contest. What do you guys think? Do you think it was a fair reflection of the results? Do you think that the results were accurate, or do you think it was a little bit distorted in terms of the way they ran the, um, the poll itself? I think the way they structured it as the actors versus each other could have changed the results significantly. I think... In those, the biggest was that Dalton beat Roger Moore in a direct vote. So that, that was significant. But Connery and Craig were up against each other from the beginning, and Craig still managed to get 43%, which is pretty good against Connery. So potentially he could have been number two if it had been structured differently. Yeah, that is the thing about how they structured it. Pierce Brosnan only had to get into the top three by being more popular than George Lazenby, which, which with a sort of wider audience is, is quite clearly going to happen. But you're right, the interesting thing about that poll was the fact that Dalton did so well in it, first by beating Roger Moore in a head-to-head, -head, which, which is surprising because we, we talked about how much we loved Dalton, but, but perhaps didn't feel like that love was, was uh, replicated outside of Bond fans. And so it's interesting that in a head-to-head, -head, he proved more popular than Roger Moore and then came second only to Connery between the two of them and Brosnan, who 
you know, I, I feel like Brosnan's sort of at the moment a little bit sidelined. I think every Bond buries to an extent the previous Bond actor. And that's happening a little bit with Brosnan at the moment. I feel like a lot of people aren't quite giving him the respect he deserves based on how good and how different Daniel Craig's films have been to, to his. I think what we were saying about Goldeneye, it, it feels like the first Bond of our generation, our age group. And so I think perhaps then not just Brosnan, but Goldeneye, that first film we're really aware of shapes how you you know view what is bond and i think it's reached the point now where a lot of people is daniel craig is bond and so the roger moore films are so completely different than the daniel craig ones that i think that might be a reason why his popularity has waned a bit perhaps if the next bond actor has more comic elements more raised eyebrows than people will think, well, Roger Moore was the precursor of this and he'll be viewed as more Bondian. Yeah, I think it's impossible really to compare them because their styles are so different. And actually hearing you, Nick, say Goldeneye again, just reminds me it needs to be said in an Irish accent. Goldeneye. Yes, Goldeneye. Okay, so our final part of the show is the quiz. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Uh, this week I have the honours. I thought we could play the reverse of Adam's game in our previous full episode. I'm going to give you the character name. It could be any character from any of the 17 films that we've looked at so far. And all you have to do is tell me how they died and who directly killed them. And if you want to, I can give you the film as well, if you're struggling. Okay, so uh, who would like to go first? So we have, uh, we have three questions, three each. So uh, Nick, question number one, you have the character is Aziz Fekish. Fekish. How does he die and who kills him? Can I have the film? The film is The Spy Who Loved Me. Ah, uh, yes. I believe... James Bond drops him off a building. Well, you've gone for one of the henchmen, but unfortunately that was, that was Sandor who utters the infamous pyramids. To Aziz Fekish is the one who succumbs to Jaws's metal teeth at the, uh, the pyramid light show. Uh, so no points, unfortunately, for you, Nick, there on question number one. Uh, so we'll go over question number two. How about uh, let's have Phil for question two. Your character is Admiral Chuck Farrell. Well, that's Goldeneye, and that's um, so he gets killed by Xenia on a top's killer thighs. Nicely put, he does indeed, Phil. Well done, that's one point for you. And over to Adam, question number three, or question number one for you is Corrine Defour. Oh, yeah, she is uh, eaten by Drax's dogs in Moonraker, I think. She is, well done. So uh, one point each for Adam and Phil. So uh, back to you, Nick, for question number two. Your character is twin number one, and I have to give you the film here, Octopussy. Twin number one. I'm not sure on this. <laughs> twin number one. Shall I? I can give you a hint. Mm. It was in a train. I'll just say um, Bond threw him off a train? You're close. Bond did kill him. I'll give you half the point. 
uh, but it, he was uh, a large cannon fell on his head as uh, as Bond was getting out of said cannon. So uh, half yeah, a point there, Eunuch. There comes back to me now. Sorry, <laughs> Phil. Your question number two is Doctor Tynan. Can I have the film? The film. I think you'll probably get it when I give you the film. Diamonds are forever. Oh, um, Winston Kid put the scorpion down the back of his neck. Is that all right? They do. Yes. Well done, Phil. That's a point for you there. And Adam, you have Helga Brent. Oh, yeah. Helga is uh, fed to Blofeld's piranhas, uh, to pronounce them correctly, in uh, You Only Live Twice. Yep, the good old piranhas. So uh, back to you, Nick. Uh, you can't win, but uh, you can salvage some pride here with Mrs. Whistler. The film? The film is Diamonds Are Forever. Not sure on that one, I'm afraid. Okay, so uh, yeah, Adam and Phil, you can't steal the points, but uh, do you know this one? Um, if, I, if you have me a second, so Mrs. Whistler was the one that ran the children's uh, sort of convent, and she got, I think, was she strangled and then drowned by Winton Kid? Yeah, yeah drowned um, by Winton Kid. Yeah, yeah, actually, it is kind of unfair because Nick hasn't joined us for all of the <laughs> the films. I don't go quite as in depth on the character names, I'm afraid, but there you go. It's fine. Okay, and uh, Phil, your last question is Kate Chapman. I can give you the film. It's The Spy Who Loved Me. I think I've got this right. It's not the woman that chases after Bond in the helicopters. I th- I'm sure she's called Linda or something like that. She's, she, I don't think it's her. I, th- no, uh, I think I know. I think I know. Is it the woman in, what's his name's office, the one that gets fed to the sharks by... Um, Oh, I've the villain's name now, but the, the head villain that... Stromberg. Stromberg. Yeah. Stromberg. It yeah. is the, uh, <laughs> the not-so-memorable Stromberg. And I might have actually got memorable <laughs> Okay, so Phil, you remain... You didn't get it to begin with, so you remain on two points. So uh, for the win, Adam, Alvarez. Well, I'm going to have to ask for the film there, I think. Okay, the film was our previous film, Licence to Kill. Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, Alvarez. Uh, let's, okay, let's have a guess and say he's the guy um, Bond harpoons on the wave crest. That is uh, Clive, who I was going to have as one of my questions, Adam. <laughs> Good old Clive. Alvarez is the the guy at the beginning who uh, who has his heart cut out by Dario. I was, yeah, I was, go- I was going between the two of those and I couldn't quite work out which one. Okay, so we go to a sudden death situation here. I'd like you to write down how many people were killed in the most deadly film, apart from Spectre. I believe some people count Spectre as the deadliest film after the explosions at at Blofeld's place. Uh, But I'm going to count before that one. The deadliest film was You Only Live Twice, where Bond dispatched of quite a few people. Uh, But overall, it's the, uh, the one that has the most amount of death. So can you just write down a number, how many people died in You Only Live Twice? Okay, do you want to uh, reveal your answers? What did we go for? Yep. Yeah, I've, I've gone for 66. See, I went for 93. So it's uh, 197 were killed. Wow. You only lived twice, so it was the deadliest film. Bond apparently only killed, well, only, uh, 21 in uh, his trigger-happy days of You Only Live Twice. Okay, so uh, I guess uh, out of Adam and Phil there, uh, Phil, you got the the highest you're the closest so uh, what would you like to play us out well as everyone's insulted me for my um interest in eric so i won't select 
flaming the experience of love because everybody's really I thought you were going to do it then Phil and I thought oh god no, no no I'm not that petty no in fact as Tina Turner um gave us the brilliant golden eye theme tune I thought let's just have simply the best by Tina Turner is that a better option oh yeah substantially considering the alternative yeah, it nicely matches our special Q branch as well. We we're talking about the best bonds, so a good choice there, Phil. Uh, so uh, that's the end of this episode. We'll see you again next week, where we'll be discussing Brosnan's second outing, Tomorrow Never Dies. In the meantime, do check out our social media pages, give us a like and follow, and of course, send your comments and your questions, any topics you'd like us to discuss. So that was the end for this week. I was Martin. I was Adam. Uh, I was Phil. And I was Nick. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da